Well, as we <clears throat> come to the very last session, let me also take the opportunity to uh, thank um, the, uh, the faculty and staff of uh, this seminary and especially the chancellor for giving me the opportunity to come and present the 2015 John Reed Miller Lectures. Um, it's been a good opportunity for me in more senses than one. As I said at the very uh, commencement of these lectures, I had been across the year working on this same subject of uh, pastoral preaching with uh, the end of getting a book on that title out of the way. And this has given me an opportunity to do what I prefer doing, and that is not so much being an author as being someone speaking directly over the same issues in an immediate sense to an audience. And back home, I wouldn't have had the opportunity within the context of the congregation to speak as forthrightly as I have done here in the midst of people who are largely preparing for pastoral ministry. So I've really been appreciative of this unique opportunity in order for me to do so. The only warning I would give for those of you who may be looking forward to seeing the book is that it is peculiarly African. I have sought to address the situations back home. Someone asked me a few minutes ago uh, what I have in mind when I speak like that. So just two quick points and we will proceed. One of them is something you would have already noted perhaps, and it's been the absence of filling up what I have been presenting with quotations of authorities on the subject of homiletics. Now, back home, the reason is quite simple. It's the fact that the more I add to the pages, the less accessible the book will be because of its price. And so, as much as possible, whatever I could leave out, in order to reduce the number of pages, the better it will be for more of my fellow pastors back home to read. Whereas if I was writing for the Western context, I would have had quite a number of authors cited in the material itself. And then uh, the second, which would have been an obvious struggle you noticed, is the illustrations. I really wished I knew something about baseball. I'm totally ignorant. <laughs> Oh, American football, equally ignorant. The only thing I notice is this starting, stopping, starting, stopping, which really frustrates me. So uh, I've had to fall back on our usual football, soccer to you, and that rings a big, loud bell in the minds of our people back home. 
So if you ever manage in the end to get a hold of it, prepare yourself for that difference uh, that you will notice. However, I have appreciated nonetheless the opportunity to reduce much of that material into four sessions, and I've appreciated the feedback that I have received thus far. In the last session that we handled yesterday, I did something rather unusual, and it was in dealing with the subject of the power of pastoral preaching, but from the greatest commandment that the Lord Jesus Christ gave uh, when he was here on earth, citing from the book um, of Deuteronomy that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, and souls. That's not where you go when you want to talk about power in preaching. But I did so deliberately in the book because it irks me when I hear people back home talking about power in a way that reduces it to idolatry. And that's really the thought form that is back home. It's independent of love for God. And I have emphasized already that anything that we end up chasing after that is not centered on God himself is an idol. And the sooner we repent of it, the better. Our lives should revolve around God. And even in seeking to be powerful pastoral preachers, we should be doing so with this in mind. I want to love my God. I want my life to be but a flame on the altar of God. And hence the unusual approach that I took yesterday. Uh, today, we move on to finally deal with the rewards of pastoral preaching. The rewards of pastoral preaching. Pastoral preaching is part of pastoral ministry. And pastoral ministry itself is fairly costly in more ways than one. I recall that when I was a young man looking for a wife, I went through two courtships. And both of them ended on the day I announced that I'm thinking about becoming a pastor. Yeah, you are laughing. At that time, I was crying. <laughs> Lord, why? How can you do this to me? So when I was presenting my third proposal to the lady who is now my wife, as part of the proposal, I added the fact that I'm thinking about going into pastoral ministry. And I said, please, if you are to say yes, it must be yes, bearing in mind that I will not take anything other than going into pastoral ministry. So already there is the cost 
And I still have deep respect to the two ladies that finally broke my heart. And it's because they were counting the cost. And both of them said they were not willing to pay that price. They were honest enough to say that. Having been in pastoral ministry, for almost 30 years now, I can indeed say there is a price to be paid. But all oh, the joy of the reward that God gives to those who labor in this way. And thankfully, part of that reward is experienced here on earth. Turn with me quickly to Philippians and chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In fact, let's begin with chapter 4 and then we'll make our way backwards to chapter 2. Remember, Paul is writing from prison. That's where he is at this point. And you would think that a person in prison would be fairly miserable especially if he is in prison because of his own ministry, his preaching ministry. But, oh, listen to this man. In fact, as many commentators have observed, the letter he wrote to the Philippians is perhaps the most joyful of all his epistles. As you read it, you almost forget that this man is with chains dangling around his ankles. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In chapter 2, this is the way he puts it. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Listen to this. Even if I'm, I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You can't miss the joy. He's saying right now, I feel like one who's on an altar about to be sacrificed, yet I'm rejoicing when I think about you, the Philippians. We find John in his second and third epistle expressing similar joy. He puts it this way in Second John and verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of 
your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Or as he puts it in 3 John verse 3 and verse 4, he says there, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, if that doesn't turn you green with envy, I don't know what will. Here is this great apostle, probably now towards the end of his life, and as he's looking back and hearing the reports coming to him concerning the health and progress, the fidelity of the people of God, it fills him with joy. Perhaps the best parallel of this is that of a parent in old age. Parenting is costly. You go through quite a bit of emptying your bank account in order to to educate your children. Since I left home, my youngest daughter graduated from university. Now, I ought to be rejoicing. But then she said to me, Dad, I'd like to do my master's. (laughs) You understand what I was going through? eh? Just when I was thinking, finally, The next salary coming is all mine. (laughs) She's still saying, no, dad, Uh, I I still need your money for for further education. It is costly. It's also costly in terms of the whole process of, of nurturing the characters of our children, the the discipline that we often have to to take them through, the the hours of instruction, the tears that we shed over their lives and so on. It is costly. Many parents, towards the end of their lives, are heartbroken because the very children into whose lives they poured so much have gone wayward. I remember an uncle of mine who died of depression when his own two sons went to early graves because of AIDS. They had gone into rebellion. He had pleaded with them. They wouldn't listen and finally he buried them. Coming from the barrier of the second son, he just went into a depression to the, until he actually died. But think of the opposite. The joy of a parent who has retired and the news that keeps coming to him concerning his adult children is that of responsible citizens. The joy, the joy, the joy in old age. That's what is being exhibited by Paul 
and by John in these passages we have read. It's not yet heaven. They're still on earth. And yet there is the joy that they are experiencing. But on the one hand, we can all understand in the natural world the joy of a parent who is able to say with humility, but at the same time genuinely, that I am proud of my children. What does it look like with respect to a lifetime of pastoral preaching? And you are, as it were, looking back. Perhaps you are still engaged in the work, but to a large extent you have been at it in the long haul. And you are now seeing something of that fruit. What is it? I want to speak of at least two or three areas. First of all, it is the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith that you, be, you are witnessing and seeing among the people to whom you have ministered. Remember the way in which the Apostle Paul defined the work of those that Jesus Christ has gifted as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. He says until, verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. What a joy it is to see the people of God grounded in the faith. Often, most of us know this, you take up a pastorate and you find so many divisions within the context of that church on all kinds of doctrines. And you begin to labor there, teaching the word of God. And as you are teaching, initially there are sharp reactions by those who think they know better and painstaking labor over the long haul, begins to bring the people slowly but surely together so that the church that was once a bloody battlefield has now become an oasis of peace because the brethren together have come to the unity of the faith. They have become as one man seeking to shed forth the light of the knowledge of God far and wide. The joy, the joy that comes to your own heart because of that, that to some measure there has been an attainment of this unity of the faith. And then there is also the godly living. The godly living in contrast to the rest of society. That's what Paul was rejoicing in in Philippians chapter 2. 
if you will remember. The way in which he put it there, that you are shining as lights in the world. Philippians 2 and verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, and listen to this, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Again, it's a present joy that Paul is experiencing while he's in prison. That whereas the society out there is full of conflict, it's full of fights, it's full of marriage breakdown, it's full of sexual immorality, it's full of theft, defrauding, and so on. What a contrast when you now look at these lives and see the exact opposite. What a contrast. I remember back home, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that I experienced the fullness of this joy, but here is a good illustration. A journalist coming to visit me in my office and following up on the subject of AIDS. So he asks me as to how many deaths in our church roughly within the year are AIDS related. And I'm sitting there scratching my head, finding it difficult to come up with any numbers. So I finally said to him, well, look, in the last, I think at that time I would have been a pastor perhaps 17 to 20 years, I think we've probably buried about seven or eight individuals, and among those, perhaps half would be AIDS-related. He asked, he said, you mean this year? I said, no, 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 probably for the last 17 years. Thankfully, one of our elders, at that time he wasn't an elder, but had been in our church for almost as long as I'd been there, was passing through. So I called him and I asked him, just walk with me on the people that we had uh, gone through funerals. And he tried and we came up with roughly 10 names. And then I said to him, probably half of them would be AIDS-related. And again, he said to me, this year, I said, no, in the last 17 or so years. Well, the newspaper article came out, and I read it. He still wrote that I had attended to about seven individuals this year who had died of AIDS. So I called him up and I said, look, we, we went through this. I actually answered you a number of times over. 
Well, clearly, it wasn't serving his purpose. He still wanted to make his point. But here is the point. He was making it with a wrong congregation altogether. Because I know of pastors whose jobs really simply revolve around funerals regularly. But what a joy it is to see the fruit of a preaching ministry that enables lives to be changed, genuinely changed, so that there is fidelity where in society itself it's almost totally missing. That godliness. Paul in Titus chapter 1 says literally the same thing. The outside community is something like this. Verse 12, Titus 1. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's the society that is around there. He even speaks about others who are religious in verse 16. And he says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are religious, but their lives are no different from the society out there. But what is he saying should be true of those who are Christians? They must be different. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That the lives of the believers should be in line with the teaching of Scripture. And oh, I repeat, what a joy it is to see this. To have individuals coming to visit your church and saying to you, you know, that person, that person, they live in my neighborhood. And I've been looking at the way their lives are so different. So now finding them here, that explains it. It explains it. To see that fruit in the lives of God's people, what a joy. But closely tied up with this godly living is the fruitfulness of their lives. Paul had spoken about it in Philippians 2 when he spoke about them holding out the word of life. So that they are serving together as one man the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it is a great joy. Often when you get into a pastorate and worldliness is the order of the day there, everybody's just thinking about myself, me, and I. That's all. And then after years of labor, to see the love for one another, the care for one another, the deliberateness, the effort 
being made by believers to serve the Lord without being pushed. There's an illustration of a, of a pastor. This one is definitely not from Africa. I read it in a book. Who was on a preaching trip and the place where he went to visit was a home that had a railway line pretty close by and it's an illustration from the period of the steam engine. And each time the, the train would pass by, he would come out of the, the home of the hosts, rush quickly and see the train go by. And then he would go back into the house to continue his sermon preparations. Again, in due season, another train would come. He would rush out of the house and see this train going by. Again, he would go into the house. Finally, after two or three such events happening, the hostess asked the visiting preacher, has he never seen a train before? And his answer was, no, I've seen them. But I just find it so refreshing to see something moving without being pushed is refreshing. <laughs> okay, you get the point. Usually back home, they'll sort of look at me wondering what's the point he's making. So <laughs> yeah. So the earlier part of your ministry, usually that's what you find. Reluctance to do anything. Reluctance, everything is about me and me. I was sick, nobody came to visit me. Well, when someone else was sick, did you visit? Well, I've been rather busy of late and so on and so forth. But to see a church now full of love, an army that is bringing down the citadels of the evil one and you are hardly there calling the shots. It's a joy. It's a joy. One more reward that I want to touch, which is an earthly joy, is that of the people of God loving you back. The people of God loving you back. Back to Philippians. This brother called Paul is in jail. But look at what he says beginning from chapter 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4 and verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The point being made there is that when the Philippians heard that Paul was in prison, they got one of their number to go and visit him, to encourage him, to minister to him. But the ministry was not to be inward only. They were able to say, brethren, Paul is in prison. Let's put some supplies together and send them to him. And so when Epaphroditus arrived, he arrived using language we are familiar with, with a truck load of goods. Maybe at that stage, it was camel loads of goods, but they arrived. And when Paul received, he thought, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. But clearly, the people of God are loving me back. Many individuals are reluctant to enter into pastoral ministry because of the price they will pay along the way. They know they will not be the most well remunerated. And often they begin to think, well, it's not the right thing to do. And I often say to them, leave that to God and to God's people. When you love them, they will love you back. Love responds to love. When they have seen that you've poured the greatest of your strength into their lives and now your strength is gone, they will love you back. Back home in Zambia, I was speaking about the pastor who discipled me in the early part of my, my Christian life. He pastored for about 10 years, went to Australia and pastored there also and as an assistant pastor for a while and then came back and became a Bible college lecturer in Jesus and became a principal. Well, when that whole period was over, he had to leave the home that he was living in and he had no home to go to. He shared with just a few individuals that I'll soon be leaving this place and pray with me because we'll need a provision for a house. It's amazing how that information filtered through without finding its way onto Facebook, but it filtered through to so many of us. And within 10 months, not only was enough money raised, but an actual house was built for him 
from scratch. And there's only one reason why those lives so many years ago that he poured his life into were loving him back. Now I know much in the West revolves around uh, pension schemes and things like that, but this is a, a peculiarly important message for pastors back home where such facilities don't exist, to be able to say to them, love the people of God. They will love you back. And you will know the joy. I missed the occasion when they were handing over the house. I just saw the pictures as they were giving the keys in a signal way to the pastor, the former pastor and his wife, you couldn't miss the joy, the joy that the Lord has provided through his people. The Apostle Paul used a very strong word, especially to the Galatians, concerning their attachment to him. In Galatians chapter 4, he puts it this way. Of course, at this stage, he was rather surprised about the way they were turning against him. But this is the way he puts it in chapter 4 and verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, that's the extent of the attachment of the people of God to a servant of the Lord who has faithfully soldiered on through thick and thin for their welfare. Oh, brethren, it's a joy. It's a joy. But let's hurry on because that's just on earth and it's temporal. What about Heaven itself. What about heaven? Again, an illustration that makes a lot more sense back home is that of a subsistence farmer. A subsistence farmer is one who farms primarily so that the crop can take him across the whole year to the next farming season. And there's a lot of joy in going into that field and seeing the healthy plants and perhaps even pulling out one cob of maize, as we call it back home, and roasting it on the fire and enjoying it in that moment. There's a lot of joy in putting your teeth into that Fresh cob of maize. The first fruits, as it were. But it's incomparable when you compare it to that final joy when the whole harvest has been brought in. And the subsistence farmer can look at this huge mountain of cobs and say that will last me until the next season. 
In fact, I can even sell half of it and use it for school fees and so on and so forth. That final joy is what I'm speaking about here. That you and I will know on that final day. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians anticipates this. Oh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says there, verse 19, But what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He's saying when the last trumpet is finally heard and the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that which is going to overwhelm us with a joy that is totally incomparable to Anything else will be you. You, the fruit of our labors. When the Lord gives to us our crown, it is you that will cause us to greatly rejoice. As we think about this, that final rewarding. Let me handle this matter faithfully. First of all, remember that this reward is going to be given by the one who sees all things. The one who himself has given to us the responsibility of pastoral preaching, pastoral work the shepherding through the word of God. Hence, as James would put it in James chapter 3 verse 1, we will undergo a stricter judgment. Now that's sobering. That's sobering. We will undergo a stricter judgment. And that's why James says, don't let us have a situation where anybody and everybody who can tie three sentences together rushes into a teaching role. Because there's going to be a stricter judgment for those who are teachers. And the reason is quite obvious. What you teach impacts lives, either positively or negatively. And when you impact lives negatively, they will impact other lives negatively. Who will impact other lives negatively. And long after you are dead, the negative fruit of your ministry will continue. Imagine the punishment for such a life. So when we speak about these rewards, please let us not think that yes, then each one of us should rush into this. 
The Lord Jesus Christ had a lot of wars to speak to the Pharisees, remember. And it was because, to borrow his words, they were making other people twice the children of hell and themselves. And in Matthew 25, rather Matthew 23, it was war upon war upon war to them. He called them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but rotten with dead men's bones on the inside. I mean, those scathing remarks of our Lord should not fall over us like water off a duck's back. They ought to, to cause us to tremble, to think that the responsibility we are taking on ourselves has far-reaching consequences. Far-reaching consequences. Therefore, when we think about the eternal rewards, let's realize that the Lord wants us to be faithful. Faithful. If you remember the parable that he gave in Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents, the statement that was being made to the one who had five and had brought five more, the one who had two and had brought two more, was well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. It wasn't so much that he's bringing in some exponential number, but that this person has had a good heart and has been faithful to his responsibility. Oh, that we might believe this. Because there seems to be a belief out there somewhere that what Jesus will be looking at is whether you had a mega church. That you can say, look at the thousands upon thousands that were listening to me every week. You can get your thousands easily by knocking off the rough edges from God's word. By becoming a motivational speaker. By offering toffees, oh, sorry, I was told that's not an American term, sweets. <laughs> you can get your thousands. And yet on the final day, the Lord will say, get away from me. Get away from me. Because you've destroyed lives instead of building them up. Brethren, we are called to be faithful. We are called to be faithful. And I want to assure you that when you leave the graduation podium of the seminary, the issue of faithfulness you probably have resolved you will be faithful. It's time that puts faithfulness to the test. Time. You can be faithful for a year 
Maybe two years. Maybe three years. Because everybody is still singing your praises. You are the new pastor in town. And people are coming to test your food. Your cooking, so to speak. But it is as the years continue. And you begin to feel the pressure. Of the world and its view of success. That the temptation comes to start cutting corners. I've never forgotten. Must have been probably the 10th year of my pastorate, maybe a little later. Alone at home. Asking myself the question. What is success in pastoral ministry? I didn't ask it as a, an academic exercise. We had just lost quite a chunk of individuals who, who left the church because they didn't like what I was preaching. It was probably the highest number and I sat there thinking, especially that they were giving the church a bad name out there. What is success? What is it? There was a knowing feeling, G-N-A-W, feeling in me that needed to be addressed. What is success? What does it look like? I'm grateful that when that period of soul searching came to an end, my mind went to the final day. It is Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That is true success. And consequently, I resolved to still continue the path as well as I knew it, to be faithful. To be faithful. And in this matter, just two quick passages and I close. The Apostle Paul gave this warning in First Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, I've laid the foundation through Christ. You have come to repentance and faith. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. In other words, it will be tested in the furnace. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Wow. What Paul is essentially saying to borrow American language, don't give junk food to your church members. Don't. Give to them in your pastoral preaching whole meals. Nutritious meals. Be faithful in that. Do a solid job in preparing those messages. Remember we dealt with the demands of pastoral preaching. Make sure you rise to those demands. Do your best. Make sure it's gold. It is silver. It is precious stones. And when the master comes back, he will say, well done. Well done. So as I close, I want to say this. That the reward on earth and much more, the reward in heaven will far outweigh the cost. Far outweigh the cost of pastoral preaching. We will all feel what an inestimable privilege I had that the Lord called to be a shepherd among his people. To feed his people at the right time. To build a people for God. As it is written in Daniel 12, verse 2 and 3, those who brought many to righteousness, those who were wise, will shine. Who shine with the brilliance of the stars. I don't know what that ultimately will work out to. And oh, in the evening, to look out into that midnight sky and imagine a frail creature of dust, fallen for that matter, finally shining with the brilliance of the stars. What a reward. What a reward. I can only say, and I'm sure you would agree with me, who all say it was worth it. Let's pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. That although we labor for your glory and it would suffice were that to be the only reward, we thank you that both in time and in eternity you promise us a bonus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
we are utterly unworthy of any of it. For we know ourselves and often our own failures and weaknesses scream back at us in the lonely hours of the night. But Lord, thank you. Thank you. We look forward to that day that will dawn eternal, bright, and fair when you will reward your own. We look forward to that crown that we will finally place at the foot of your throne for you alone are worthy. Yet, Lord, continue to encourage us by these thoughts that we may remain faithful until the final trumpet. In Jesus' name, we ask and pray. Amen.